pale horse. The man who sat on him was dead. And hell followed with him. You're killing me, man. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decorations War. I am your host, Alexei Card, back after a long break and joined by my co-host, Artemis Albosa. Howdy, howdy. We have quite the show. Much has happened since we've last recorded. Oh, my gosh. First off, some shout-outs, and we'll get into all this very soon. The Unthinkables, Counterdrop, Disturbance, Gone Berserk, Blood Covenant, Unspoken, everyone else who has been working in Great Wildlands, to support us and just support pro-content culture in EVE generally. It's been an amazing experience so far. My shout-out goes to CCP Falcon for laying out the facts surrounding the stuck supers that we'll talk more about later. Yeah, I love the transparency there. Very good to see. Uh, we have advertising spots on Declarations of War. If you are interested, hit me up in-game or EVE-mail or PM me on Reddit. PM me on Twitter, number of ways you can get in contact with Alexei of Card. We do have spots available for your corp, service, or business. Our poll. Will the Alliance Tournament, Alliance Tournament 17, that's next year's, have more available spots than teams to fill them? This is kind of a confidence poll about the popularity of the Alliance Tournament, because this year there was quite the controversy that not enough people wanted to play. 75% of voters believe that there were going to be more available spots than actual teams to participate. That is terrible. I find uh, a very huge flaw in this answer, and that it assumes that there will be an alliance tournament next year. And it assumes that that alliance tournament will have the same number of spots as it did this year. I think it does not assume that second one. Very strong assumptions. It does not assume that second one. I suspect that when answering, people did. But you are correct. That is actually not a necessary assumption. It does assume there will be an alliance tournament. Thank you, Artemis, for tapping into the darkest timeline. (laughs) It is possible there will be no alliance tournament next year. I really hope not. I hope that the rules are maybe changed to be a little less stringent, a little more fun. Maybe that'll encourage more teams to come in. Maybe more clarity about prizes and format and all that kind of stuff ahead of time to give people time to prepare and more hype. I feel like it's doable. I mean, there will always be people interested in the Alliance tournament. My only problem is, is I seriously believe that the vast majority of those people have all just sort of conglomerated into a few organizations. And so there are only going to be very few numbers of very competitive groups. The rest of the people who are competing are only competing like to say, oh, we competed in the Alliance Tournament, or to throw their hat in the ring, if you will. They not necessarily have experience, they aren't necessarily expected to go particularly far, and as the Alliance Tournament loses its uh, rep, as it loses its pomp and circumstance, the number of those groups putting in the time and the effort and the money are going to drop drastically. Yeah, that's fair. Not to mention, like, there is a massive war going on. And any time that there is a massive war that happens, large organizations fail skate. 
And we've already seen it, like Dreamfleet, they're in the Alliance tournament. They fail skated. They lost something like a, th- no, was it Dreamfleet that lost something like a thousand or did they lose 500? In any case, like a number of Russian groups have just completely lost the majority of their members. Dreamfleet was one of them. They're in the bracket. We'll see if they actually put together a team, though. I mean, that always happens. Or not always, but it's happened before. And it is usually the case that the Alliance tournament pilots will stay in and continue. Most of the time, they are fairly well insulated from the overall Alliance collapse. But there is a case to be made of like whether or not they'll have the same amount of resources to compete in terms of like replacement ships and all that stuff. I don't know if there were thefts, or who knows what goes on when an alliance falls apart like that. Anyway, it's going to be interesting to see. And it's also interesting if the current conflict will have any other repercussions for its participants along the same lines. Oh boy, so let's get into it. Uh, the big story. Imperial Legacy versus Holy... Uh, what are we calling them now? Holy Meteorite? Well, it's interesting, right? Because this fight is taking place on two fronts. There's the Northern Front and there's the Southern Front. So generically speaking, the Northern Front is considered Pan-Fam. Generically speaking, ironically, the Southern Front, which includes Pandemic Legion, has been termed the Holy Meteorite Coalition. Holy because of the Holy League, the people who took out DRF and the Northeast recently. And then Meteorite to encapsulate everyone else because they're coming in to destroy Test, the middle management dino. That works for me. (laughs) I just find it ironic that people are still referring to all the groups up north who are fighting as PanFam when Pandemic Legion isn't up there. At least their supers aren't, so... Yeah, and NC.Supers supers are south too, I believe, unless they move back. I think they moved them back. That's okay. um, a question that I wanted to ask some people earlier, but I was bad and forgot to set an alarm, and so I missed uh, I missed my opportunity. So let's go into the specifics here. Uh, Legacy announced that they were going to blue the Imperium. Those are basically two of the three or four largest powers in the South. Now together, uh, test leading Legacy Coalition, which also incorporates Brave Newbies and a few other alliances. Imperium, the by far largest economic superpower in the game. Both of the both of these groups are like very newbie friendly, very mass numbers, very organized, at least in Imperium's case, somewhat less organized in Legacy's case, but make up for it with that newbie enthusiasm. Aligned against them are the more traditional, uh, older powers of EVE, smaller numbers of elite players kind of situation. And plus the the fraternity guys, basically the Chinese immigrants from the Serenity server. The thing that I find rather disturbing is that you have just described two quote-unquote newbie organizations, and as a result of Rorquals and Skill Injectors... Those newbie organizations have the largest super capital force in the game. Well, I mean, I say newbie. The most most, um, expensive ships in the game, they have the largest fleet of them. Well, I say newbie more in the culture. This sort of came up that way, very untraditional for an EVE alliance. The reason why they have the largest super fleet is because, like I said, Goon's biggest economic superpower. 
they have been mining more in their regions than all other regions combined, basically. And we've been asking and speculating, what have they been putting it in? Well, it seems like they've been putting it in a massive number of titans. And they are willing to swing it around. This is where they've started to commit. They've put a massive, massive super fleet into the south. And I believe they also have a... a I don't know if it's a comparably sized group, but a still a group of some kind up in the north as well. Yeah, I think they... So they have their shield supers down south, which synergizes as well with the shield supers of Legacy. And then they move their armor supers up north. Having seen the numbers of the armor supers, which were at the onlining of the 6RCQ Keepstar, which we'll talk about a bit later, I think... And then subsequently seeing their shield super numbers down south for the UALX Keepstar, I think they have significantly more armor Keepstar or supers than shield supers. But it could be that they have simply more combat armor supers than shield supers. So in addition to using their shield supers in the south to sort of help Legacy Coalition out, they also have them for home defense and delve. And... Shield supers are the most popular ratting supers. So they probably numerically technically have more shield supers, but as far as combat capable and in a combat zone, I think their armor super force, which is back up north, it's been confirmed, is the larger of the two groups. And when you say back up north confirmed, you're referring to they went down for the UALX fight, which we'll talk about in a sec, but they are now returned to their former staging? Yes. Gotcha. All of them? I I can't say all of them, but as I understand it, it is a vast majority. Okay. So they, they had relocated some portion of that fleet. Unclear, at least to me, if they were going to keep at least part of it down there, because it seemed like they might have needed it to get the numbers edge on PL and NC dot. Yeah, that's a good point. But then again, like the PL, or pardon me, uh, could you restate that one more time and be a bit more specific about what they needed where. So in the UALX fight, uh, it seemed like they needed more to really seal the deal. Uh, if those numbers had stayed the same, and with, you know, I mean, I guess that's not factoring NC dot relocating their supers as well. Like, just what was on the field. Maybe. There is also the thought that, like, hey, you know, from if you're thinking about this from the Imperium perspective... They've got the Holy Meteorite supers trapped. So maybe they don't need to keep their supers down there. Maybe they can rely on legacies, albeit smaller, super force to successfully camp the offline super force of Holy Meteorite. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's, let's talk about leading up to these fights. So we had two major ones and a third that was almost a major one. The first one was the Goon Keepstar anchoring in 6R CQ Tech V. That was up north. It's on the border between Cloudring and Fade. Right after that, the CO2 staging Keepstar got reinforced, and it was expected to be a massive fight, but for the armor timer, um, apparently there was a mix-up in with the Goon FCs, and they thought that an offline pause or that you cannot online a Sinojammer on a reinforced pause, which was not the case. So all of GOTG, NCDOT, etc. formed up early, got into system, camped the entrances, online to Sinojammer, and Goons blueballed it. After they formed up thousands of dudes, which was 
a huge morale thing. There was tons of propaganda posts on Reddit. So that was <laughs> it's not really blue balling if you can't get in there in the first place. Yeah. And then the third thing that we'll talk about is the Legacy Keepstar situation in UALX. But leading up to this, we saw basically Legacy getting their getting rolled in the South. You had Fraternity, basically all of Holy Meteorite, Fraternity, Skill Yourself, the people who kicked DRF out of the East. Add in um, some other people down South. PL moved their super fleet down South, which really I thought was the nail in the coffin for Legacy. Because when PL piled on, like then you know that there is not a chance that Legacy can outnumber them super-wise if you have all of those supers. And they were just rolling through. They were gaining Sov. They were destroying structures. There were a ton of Fortazars and even faction Fortazars, which were just dying. Tenerifus in Immensi area. And it looked like Tess was on the back foot. They lost a Keepstar in Tenerifus to Holy Meteorite. And so I think a lot of people had basically written off, okay, Legacy is going to get steamrolled. What does this mean? And then Legacy went and blued the Imperium. And together, they basically declared war on the rest of the game. After this announcement, the Imperium deployed their armor super fleet up north. And so goons are effectively focusing a northern front. And then they also have support for Legacy down south. So the tactical dynamics of this from the Imperium Legacy side, excuse me, Imperial Legacy side, is you've got... uh, Legacy Coalition basically fighting a delaying action in the south until goons could get over to support them. Meanwhile, goons pushing up north, hopefully to get Pandemic Legion to relocate their super fleet back north. That's That's got to be the strategic play from their side. Currently, <laughs> did not play out that way, as uh, there was a major fight in UALX, and... Uh, Basically, we got the commitment that we've been looking for since that million-dollar EVE post, the million-dollar battle hype that went on a couple months ago. been waiting for this kind of thing, and it finally happened. Uh, Pandemic Legion, all those guys committed their super fleet. Test and Imperium committed their super fleets. Same time, same grid, fully bubbled. Everyone was all in. Yeah, and... Before we get to UALX, we do have to talk because chronologically speaking, the goon keeps our anchoring in 6RC happened first. And so what we saw there is goons just, they anchor to Keepstar, they basically control Cloud Ring, CO2 basically controls Fade. And what happened was the bordering system 6RCQ between Cloud Ring and Fade, goon anchors, goons anchor a Keepstar. Everyone formed up, this is going to be the big fight, everyone's expecting it. And then goons jump in an insane amount of armor supers. Like, it's a common occurrence now to see a Fortizar model just completely surrounded by supers, right? That's not super surprising at this point anymore. But seeing the number of supers next to a Keepstar model was just crazy. Like, there were four blobs, basically like in the shape of WASD keys in front of this Keepstar model. And you couldn't see half the Keepstar through all of the supers. Like, it was crazy. And the uh, NC tried the strategy, I say NC, NC, GOTG, etc. Tried the strategy which was used to kill, 
I believe it was the CO2, no, the GOTG Keepstar that was anchoring an MTO back when GOTG was going to invade the DRF, um, which is basically, it, it's jokingly called feed to win because you take some long range dreads and you drop them in groups spread out around the massive Keepstar model and basically keep shooting the model, which can't keep shooting the Keepstar, which can't be repped until it dies. And this didn't work. The dreads were killed off quickly enough. And the subcaps, they brought in healers and Ishtars because the drones also could not be killed off easily. This was an anchoring keep star, so it didn't have a point defense. So you basically had to use subcaps, not the supers, to try and kill all of this stuff was the theory. But unfortunately, like fighters just shredded the horde Gila fleet. And then the Baltac fleets were warping around, killing off groups of dreads. There were also groups of dreads dropped on the long-range dreads. And so the decision was eventually made that they needed to pull out. And so this Goon Keepstar onlines in 6RC, presumably to be a staging point to begin to harass CO2 space and assets. So this is Goon's gateway to the north, essentially. Exactly. Directly after they online this, as I discussed a little bit earlier, they reinforce the CO2 stage in Keepstar. Fight almost happened, but Sino Jammers are a thing, and so it didn't happen. There were reports that the GOTG stage in Keepstar and Fade, which I forget the system name, but there were reports that it also got reinforced. However, I went out there today, and it's not currently reinforced, so either that was a ruse post or it got saved with no fight and no hype. So I'm not sure which of those is the case, but in any case, as far as I can tell, there is no currently reinforced Keepstar in the North as of the time of this recording, which now brings us down to the situation in UALX. Yes. And uh, interesting note to my prediction for this war. I predicted, admittedly not on the show, but that the Guardians of the Galaxy Coalition would fold within two weeks. It seems like with the offensive stalled against the CO2 Keepstar and with everyone moving down to UALX, that timeline is not going to happen. But still uh, still an open question. Since the outcome of UALX, now that the Goon Supers have moved back, uh, will they restart that offensive? Almost certainly. Uh, is there going to be any support coming for Guardians of the Galaxy? Probably not tons. Maybe NC Dot's armor super fleet? Uh, is will it be enough? I'm going to doubt it. Yeah, I mean, what we've seen up in the north is that a number of fights have basically resulted in goons dropping supers and the north being unable to deal with it. Either the north just does not have enough dreads to dread bomb effectively because there are too many facts. And so basically the only option to combat supers is more supers, but goons overwhelmingly has super superiority they have more numbers and now they have the confidence to drop them because they have a keep star to go back to so uh, you've seen multiple fortizars going down and losec and in fade that belong to co2 we've seen a number of fights which have gone down over various timers which have resulted in a loss for the northern groups and c g2g etc because goons are dropping supers on them. Now, these sort of set-piece battles are one thing. Another thing is going to be the Sov Warfare, which it's still unclear because Sinojammers are in play and because 
uh, node spawns happen throughout a constellation if supers are going to be a huge advantage for goons in that situation. I think because they have so many, the answer will be yes. They could easily afford to split that super group into multiple systems with like uh, like rapid response sinos all over the place. I think they could do it just fine. And it's also to be mentioned, they don't just have the super fleet. They also have these large subcap fleets. They can do work on the sob grind. Yeah, that is a viable option. Uh, one interesting point to note is that the CO2 Keepstar, there was an attempt made after it was saved. There was an attempt made to reinforce the iHub. And when it came out for its timer, Goons brought a Baltac fleet, which is an armor T1 battleship, mostly Megatrons and Apocalypses. They brought that to do Sov Warfare. And then they did some weird positioning stuff where it looked like they were just straight up camping the wrong system and proceeded to lose the timer. So it's still yet to be seen if goons have the coordination necessary or even the doctrines available to actually properly do offensive soft warfare. That is a fair point. Um, goon logistics... I would say is a bit of an unknown. We know they've got the good mining. We know they've got the manpower on the field. Um, I don't know what their logistics train looks like going up north. I would guess supplying them with small ships like frigate or destroyer type stuff. Probably not going to be the most difficult ask if they really need it. Um, in this age of citadels, though, so the Sov warfare is, can be thought of as an afterthought, except for cases like the Sinojammer. But in the case of the Sinojammer, they could easily take that Baltec fleet and just go turn it off. Worst case scenario. Like, without reinforcing the system. Yeah, I suppose that is an option. It's also worth noting that there hasn't really been a major solve battle with Super Capitals taking a significant role since we've had the change where Entosa ships can now be wrapped. So I know like when MC was defending our space because uh, first time around when goons were invading the north for content, quote unquote, the initiative had reinforced the faction stations or the stations which were going to become faction stations. And so basically to to Intosis, to defensively Intosis, we dropped some very heavily tanked like battlecruiser type things. And then we had a fax sitting there with them. And then we Sino jammed everything. And the deal was... We were going to sit there and rep our thing. And if we were also camping our entry system. So if anything got into the pocket, we'd know what it was. We'd hopefully prevent it from getting into the pocket. And the only thing that could really threaten us would be a mass swarm of bombers, which could bridge in using a covert Sino. And then we just take down our Sino jammer and bridge in something to kill all this, the bombers. Or we tank the facts for as long as possible and then move over a, like a caracal fleet or something to shred them. So like facts sitting on top of heavily tanked Intosis subcapitals is a viable option. You just have to remember to fit a scram to the facts so that they can't boosh away your toaster. <laughs> In any case, we're getting we're way off topic. Here. Way we're off topic. Let's go into UALX. UALX, the actual battle. Uh, the objective was a keep star. It was a Imperial Legacy Keepstar and by test. Panfam and Holy Legacy all came in. Well, not all of Panfam. Pandemic Legion, Holy Legacy came in. <laughs> Holy Legacy, fuck me. Holy Meteorite 
Uh, they did successfully kill the Keepstar. However, after it went down, the Super Fleet got bubbled and they got counter-dropped upon. Well, it wasn't necessarily after it went down. So the, the timeline of events was before the timer comes out, Holy Meteorite drops supers at range. And they drop long range. And because it's an offline Keepstar, or it's an anchoring Keepstar, it's not fit yet. So theoretically, you could drop your super short range the reason that people often drop long range supers, there are a couple of them. Number one is so that if people drop like long range dreads or long range supers on you, you can still do something about it. If you have short range guns and they drop their long range stuff, you can't necessarily do about it, do anything about it. Although in heavy tie dye, when you're talking about the HP pools of supers, it is a realistic option to deaggress and refit. But that point aside, the other thing is if you're dealing with Fortizars or Keepstars, they will destroy fax machines. And so you have to drop your fax machines out of the range of the Citadel, and you do this using long-range gun Titans. And so my only guess as for why Holy Meteorite dropped their supers at range, which put them at a relative disadvantage, because it meant that because they dropped first, Legacy could drop short-range supers directly on top of the Holy Meteorite supers and have a, an advantage off the bat because they're going to be doing more damage. So my only guess is Holy Meteorite went into this knowing that there was the possibility that this Keepstar on lines. And so if they go in at zero or at close range, if that thing on lines and gets fits, then instantly you have to deal with uh, your facts dying. And so you could just whelp an entire super fleet. So they had to play it safe and they had to go in at range. But in any case, that's a tangent. Well, Maybe it's right sort of... I wouldn't even say it's a tangent because by going at range and by taking the Keepstar out of the equation as far as defending itself, it essentially forced Imperial Legacy to come onto the field with something if they wanted to keep it alive because there was no way the Keepstar was going to do it on its own. Yeah, that's a fair point. And I think, uh, to CCP's credit, that's the way they designed it. They wanted these things to be force multipliers. The thing I don't think they did anticipate was that they can be force multipliers even when they're not online yet. And so that's what turned out to be happening. So Imperial Legacy then dropped their supers at zero on the Keepstar. And it's worth noting here that Imperial Legacy had shield supers. So they had shield supers from Goons, which they left in Delve and shield supers from appear from legacy which is their standard doctrine whereas the north typically runs armor supers and from holy meteorite you had triumvirate who had shield supers and mostly armor supers from the rest of the group and basically what happens is you still get tethered to an anchoring or to a keep star which is in its repair timer so after this thing comes out of its timer it's tethering all of these shield supers and all of their facts which means that while they're tethered, they get cat back and they can't be shot. So at any given point in time, like half of the Imperial Legacy Supers were tethered to their Keepstar, regening cap, making sure that they could turn on their hardeners, making sure that they could overheat them. And moreover, a big argument against shield supers is that your hardeners get turned off in a major super battle. But that assumes you're in any sort of newt range. We didn't see any super weapons being used, like the the projected ones that supers got in the rebalance pass. 
I didn't see any of this happening. It could have been the streams that I was watching didn't have the effects turned on such that we could see them, but I didn't see any. And they were both out of range of each other to utilize newts, barring when Legacy dropped a bunch of dreads on Holy Meteorite, which happens later in the fight that we'll talk about. So the shield supers had no problem keeping their tank on, which meant that they had more damage and better tank, and they could overheat their hardeners if it looked like they were about to get Doomsday volleyed. Basically what this came down to is both sides were sitting three to 400 kilometers apart, the guns from the Holy Meteorite were trained on the Keep Surges, constantly shooting it, wearing down its EHP. Whereas the guns and the Doomsdays of the Imperial Legacy fleet were wholly committed to killing Faxes and Supers for Holy Meteorite. And what we saw was basically Imperial Legacy could successfully volley Supers quicker than holy meteorite could at the end of the day there were 10 titans that were volleyed by holy meteor or pardon me 10 holy meteorite titans that were volleyed by imperial legacy and four imperial legacy titans that were volleyed by holy meteorite and the way this works is using the targeted doomsday we're not talking bosons lances anything like that the targeted doomsdays they're still single target they do a lot of damage although less than they used to but they have a shorter cycle time and so using roughly 40 to 50 of these on a single super will volley it, on a single titan, rather. And so that's what was happening. It looked like Imperial Legacy just had more supers to utilize, or more titans, rather, to utilize to volley quicker. And they also had the Keepstar there that they could degress, tether to, and cap back up. Uh, additionally, when you're trading like that, the trades themselves are very important, and apparently a test titan survived uh, being primaried by the doomsday of the Holy Meteorite fleet. So it actually, they wasted, well, not waste exactly, but an entire cycle of doomsdays was spent unsuccessfully, which, you know, not at the end of the day, but you know, those kind of decisions do matter and can add up, especially in a, uh, a close fight like that. Basically took them out for what? What's what's the reload time in uh, tie-dye? It's like 40 minutes or something like that. I do not know. I, it's worth mentioning that I'm fairly certain the same thing happened. I'm thinking Erebus on the side of Holy Meteorite also survived a Doomsday Volley. So it happened to both sides. Um, it's also worth mentioning another important thing here is if you're getting doomsday volleyed in the tie-dye, things don't all volley like they would in normal time, right? So even though theoretically everybody's activating their module at the same time, it's not really going to happen in reality. And so there is an opportunity for facts to land reps. And with shield facts, those reps land at the start of the cycle. Whereas armor facts, those reps land at the end of the cycle. So if it came to there were spies in fleets, or somebody fired a doomsday early, or the titan pilots were paying attention to how many hostile titans were locking them up, they could broadcast early and the shield supers would more easily catch reps than the armor supers in a volley situation. But throughout this fight, titans are trading the keep star is slowly dying it's eventually like people realize okay this keep star is going to die the question is what happens then 
because then uh, Holy Meteorite's going to have access to their guns, which were previously unable to be used to assist in the Titan volleying game, because they had to be focused on the Keepstar, whereas Imperial Legacy could use their guns on the Titans of Holy Meteorite. And it's around this point that Legacy starts dropping dreads. And this isn't your normal dread drop, right? Usually we say there's a large dread bomb if there's like 100, maybe 200 dreads. This was something in the range of five to 600 dreads that were dropped directly on top of the Holy Meteorite Superforce. <laughs> Interestingly enough, about 400 of those dreads died, and they didn't trade favorably either. So during the stream, there were a number of people saying, oh, they're trading well, they're trading well. That was not the case. If you look at the battle report, look at the number of faxes that were dying, look at the number of uh, dreads that were dying, the dreads were not trading well whatsoever. Um, which brings into question sort of why these dreads were dropped. And this is where we have to talk about what was the role of all of the other ships in the system at this time. We had subcap fleets, we had carriers, we had dreads, and we had supercarriers. The subcaps themselves were mostly a force to be reckoned with early on where people were fighting for position on the grid. There were a large portion of the Goon Baltac fleet, which just got bombed into oblivion. Um, Test had nightmares out that were doing work. I think they were mostly focusing on shredding fighters based on the number of fighters that had subcaps on their kill mills that I saw. There were also Cerberus fleets from NC and GOTG. And then there were some other groups around sort of getting on kill mills, things like that. But apart from assisting and shooting fighters, the subcaps couldn't really do much. The carriers were there. They don't really have DPS on the scale of super capitals. And so the majority of them, from what I could tell, were using space superiority fighters mm -hmm. in order to win the fighter war. And this is important because the super carriers, if they can get their fighters their fighter bombers, things like that, their heavy damage fighters, three to 400 kilometers on top of the other Titan ball, they can shred faxes like no tomorrow. And so you could tell from the start, it looked like Legacy was just feeding fighters into Holy Meteorite, trying to shred their faxes. But it looked like Holy Meteorite had enough super carriers using SFS and regular carriers using SFS to prevent that from happening. My understanding is by the end of the fight, both sides were either out of fighters or in some cases down to their last set. And the purpose of these dreads, when they went in, people were suspecting with that many dreads, you could theoretically volley titans. But it looks like that their entire purpose was to go in and try and break the faxes. Because like I said, both sides had whiffed a titan doomsday volley. They had tried to volley a target and that target survived. It was a Ragnarok on the side of uh, Imperial Legacy that survived and an Erebus on the side of Holy Meteorites to survive. So both sides were like, okay, they can tank our Doomsday Volleys, what now? And Legacy's answer was to drop a bunch of dreads. And by a bunch, I mean like 600. <laughs> and after the Keepstar dies, um, Titans are continuing to die. I think one or two died on both... No, one or two died on the side of Imperial Legacy in like four or five died on the side of Holy Meteorite after the Keepstar died. And then the node crashed. And at this point, it's about an hour, hour and a half until downtime. Everybody was wondering, does this fight continue after downtime? The people log back in. 
And it appears that Holy Meteorite at the time of Node Crash just decides, nope, this is done. We're trading in favorably. We don't have a good way to extract from this. We're just not going to log back in. Except for one random avatar who right after the server comes up, logs back in and gets nuked. So after that happens, then a bunch of nonsense posting goes up on Reddit, of course, like you do. And what I thought couldn't happen, because during the stream on the Imperium News Twitch channel, they had a Goonswarm Logistics guy talking about the keep stars that were being anchored, both the one up north and the one down south. And reportedly, when goons wanted to anchor their keep star in 6RCQ, they didn't have one ready yet. It was still in build. So they talked to Legacy, and Legacy had one ready. And so they just traded. They said, okay, we'll use the Legacy Keep Star, we'll anchor it in 6RCQ, and when ours comes out, you can have it. And so it was actually the Goon-built Keep Star that was anchored in UALX. But based off this information, there was a question, what can Legacy do now that their Keep Star is dead that they were trying to anchor, but that the Holy Meteorite doesn't have an active superforce? The obvious answer is anchor another Keep Star. But then the question is, do they have one? And apparently the answer was yes, because a second Keepstar was dropped the next day, and it onlined. In addition <laughs> to, the spot where all of the Holy Meteorite supers were logged off, Legacy anchored a Fortizar and a ton of bubbles, and have basically been camping it ever since. There's just been a constant stream of like subcapitals and things that are logging in the next day, two days after, and dying. So, state of play... Keepstar is online in UALX. Fortizar and a bunch of bubbles are online in UALX where the Holy Meteorite Superfleet is logged off. Overall, if you just look at the raw numbers, this is a bit of a ferric victory. I believe NC Dot, or excuse me, I believe Pandemic Legion, Holy Meteorite came out slightly ahead on ISK, but both sides took just staggering losses. And with their super fleet trapped, it's hard to feel it. It's, it's hard to feel like a win for them. Um, I would say more of a ferric victory kind of thing. However, this does, like you said, put tests in a very interesting position where now they, like, how much can they move? I would say that minimum, they can't really move their super fleet outside of Sina range of that system. As if they do, the Holy League, or excuse me, the uh, Holy Meteorite fleet is just out escape pretty easily yeah so that's the interesting if you look at this from a strategic point of view at the war between imperial legacy and holy meteorite what advantage does holy legacy have now they have an online keep star in ualx that means they can stage their supers there they can stage their caps there and it's much more difficult to kill than a fortizar would be moreover they have the Holy Meteorite supers trapped, which means even if it was just a Fortizar, they couldn't kill it. Because if they try to kill it with subcaps, Imperial Legacy outnumbers them. If they try and kill it with caps, Imperial Legacy drops their super fleet. And so they basically have uncontested staging in Tenerifice. This UALX jump range for super capitals also reaches roughly half of Amencia as well. And so now we have to think, okay, you've got an uncontested superfleet in this zone. What does that give you? The majority of the test structures have been killed. 
I say the majority, a lot of test and legacy structures have been killed in Tenerifus and Immensi. I'm not sure how many remain. I'm not sure of the value of those that remain. So those can be defended. Then the question which we talked about a bit earlier is how much of an impact does the super fleet have on a SOV warfare? Because that's the only other objective here, right? Once all the structures are gone, you got to retake the SOV. Because at the moment, right now, about three quarters of Tenerifus, the iHubs are gone for a lot of systems, and the TCUs are in the hands of Holy Meteorite. In Immensi, it's roughly 60-40 with Holy League, or pardon me, Imperial Legacy owning roughly 60% of the SOV and Holy Meteorite owning roughly 40%. And right now, the only systems which are reinforced are Holy Meteorite systems in Tenerifus. So it looks like what Legacy is doing while they have an uncontested super fleet is attacking SOV in Tenerifus. And it'll be interesting to see how that works for them. I want to update my statement, at least according to Z-Kill's official figures, which do not look quite right to me. It's possible some of these guys are on the wrong side. But I there are so many alliances here, I'm not going to bother to fix it at the moment. Uh, let's see. Well, I know these guys are on the wrong side. Hold on. So the night of the battle taking place, after we knew, okay, Holy Meteorite isn't logging back in, I went through br.inear.space, and I made a battle report. Going through checking the kill boards of every single group on that battle report and putting them in the proper columns between people who were third parties, people who were with Holy Meteorite, and people who were with Legacy. What is and the total tally? From that, and it, mind you, it was missing two titans on the side of a Holy Meteorite that died. But from that, it looked like Imperial Legacy lost roughly 1.6 trillion, and Holy Meteorite lost roughly 1.1 trillion. So if you add in the extra titans, there's probably some facts and some dreads lost on both sides, which Kill Mills had not updated at the time. So I'm betting that it's pretty close to 50-50, probably 55-45, but both sides lost well over a trillion-esque. And I believe it is also officially the largest fight in EVE history, numbers-wise. Really? That's what they were saying on the Imperium News Network stream at the time. I don't know it's what the not... total local count was off the top of my head, but that's what they're saying. I don't think it got anywhere near the 6,000 that were in 9-tech 4. Like, the largest that I saw reportedly local was broken, but the largest that was seen in local was 3.9k. So I don't think it broke the record in terms of pilots, and I don't think it broke the record in terms of ISK loss. It certainly didn't break the record in terms of super capitals lost. So it, it may have a... broken the record of ISK fielded. That is, yeah. You know what? That's probably correct. ISK fielded this is almost certainly the largest battle of history. But as far as anything lost, no. Like, no, even, definitely not lost. Even the CTAC-L gank of all of the DRF supers was more than this. And Still it, super exciting. Uh, I encourage you guys out there to go look at all the cinematics and various videos people have been posting on Reddit and elsewhere. It's it's going to be one of those significant out uh, significant battles that Eve history remembers for a long time, even if it isn't necessarily breaking records. 
in terms of importance in the overall narrative, I don't think this can be understated because this really is the first time both of these groups have let loose with their Titan fleets. It's such an even fight. Most of the time when you hear this kind of battle, it's either a non-starter, like everybody gears up for a fight, but no one really commits, or it's totally one-sided, where one side gets completely smashed. That they're willing to go balls to the wall and smash their fleets into each other without a clear advantage one way or the other, without one group deciding to not escalate. Uh, I think, uh, you know, this could be a repeat. Like, we could have another version of this down the line. Neither side had a clear victory here. Both sides kind of realized they could do this and get away with it. Alternatively, <laughs> you might see risk-averse players go, well, we don't want to... We don't want to risk things going poorly. We don't have a clear advantage. We might not deploy. But certainly I see this as a step in the right direction for seeing more of these more even-keel, large-scale capital fights. It certainly speaks well for the overall tone of the war, which you know, we were kind of speculating if this would be you know, one of those non-starter wars that might end right away. doesn't seem like it. One thing that I wish would end right away is all the drama surrounding, like, the stock supers. So, having a super fleet stock logged off in a hostile system is a problem. Obviously, Holy Meteorite doesn't like this and is going to be looking for ways to get out of it. And reportedly, their leadership has gone around and pinged out to file stock petitions, which is basically a petition to CCP saying that your assets are stuck. Usually this is used if you're returning to the game from a long period, and so your assets are in a station where you've been kicked and you no longer have access. But the they have an explicit statement in that particular section which says that anything with a jump drive, any capital, any super, doesn't qualify. So clearly that's not the exact petition that they're using. It would be a non-starter. Nevertheless, a bunch of petitions got filed, there was a bunch of drama about it because reportedly some skill yourself discord logs got leaked showing Capcu telling all his pilots to file these petitions. And then also reportedly supers were getting moved. So people were like, whoa, this shouldn't be happening. CCP should not be moving these things out of the system. And then CCP Falcon, my shout out for this episode, comes in. It's like, okay, guys, these are the facts. This is what is happening. Supers aren't getting moved out of UALX. They will not be getting moved. It is, they got stuck where they are because, not because of the node death, they had the opportunity to log back in afterwards before downtime. So it wasn't because of the node death. It was a tactical decision not to log back in. You got yourself in the situation. You get yourself out of it, not CCP's problem. And then they went on to say, that there were a number of stuck petitions filed, and two of them had a junior GM, Game Master, who actually did move the ships. So there was one Revelation, there was one Erebus. The Erebus was then moved back into UALX. The Revelation was not, because it had been put into a corp hangar and then taken out by another pilot. And so, like, first of all, it's kind of insignificant. Second of all, it the pilot who got it didn't necessarily know, oh, this revelation was um, 
not supposed to have been taken out of UALX by a GM, then put into my corp hanger, and then I took it out. So it'd kind of be rude to take it from the new pilot. In any case, all the supers which were stuck in UALX will not be getting moved by CCP. And all the one super that did get moved has been moved back. And the amusing thing is, after this happened, when... um. Everyone was saying, oh, supers are getting moved out. And then it turned out that no supers didn't get moved out. The next drama that came up is a bait post saying that all of the Holy Meteorite people used an exploit to get themselves out around downtime this morning as of recording. As far as we know, that is not true. Both the fact that an exploit was used and the fact that the supers are out, that they're no longer stuck. There has yeah, been we, evidence. Go ahead. We looked into it uh, to see if we could get it confirmed, and we just couldn't. I mean, there is a distinct possibility that it's true, but at least at the time of this recording, we don't believe that it is, and we just want to report it as an unconfirmed rumor that we do not believe is the case. Like, to be clear, as far as your hosts know, those supers are stuck in place. So, like, the drama surrounding the stock tickets, it's over. Falcon laid out the facts. One super got moved. It got moved back. No more supers are being moved. If anybody tries to say, oh, well, they shouldn't have been filing stuck uh, tickets. Listen, if you were in the position where your super and Titan fleet was stuck in a hostile system, you'd be doing every option available to you to try and get them out. They took a shot. It didn't work out. That's just the state of play. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that it's not the classiest thing to do, but it's super understandable. If there was even a 1% chance it would have worked, it would have been silly not to do it. Frankly, if we're looking at the history of every single organization involved in this war, classy is not at the top of my list of words to describe them, so not bothered. (laughs) In any case, that wraps up essentially the hot mess that is UALX, the war going on. It's worth mentioning that the battles up north, things to keep an eye on, it looks like the focus is on Circle of Two and Fade. We've had a number of low-sec and even null-sec Fortizars belonging to the CO2 that have died, mostly to the Imperium Superfleet. The armor supers, which they have up north, mind you, not the shield ones, which may or may not be committed to camping the Holy Meteorite supers. It's also worth noting that NC, GOTG, CO2, all those groups up north, they still have their armor super fleet up north as far as we know. NC did try and move a contingent of supers which were available at the time down south to help out with the UALX fight. They never entered UALX, and there have been no reports that they were prevented from getting back up north. So as far as we know, all the supers which were up north are back up north. So keep an eye on fade keep an eye on what happens with co2 the solve there there are a couple of systems which are reinforced so we'll see what happens with that mostly i'm expecting it to be a matter of whittling down structures and strategic assets like that first and then they're going to be dealing with the solve because citadels are a massive force multiplier in a solve war it allows you to stage stuff it gives you a safe harbor if you need to extract and so keep an eye on what happens there if the number of Citadel kills are going up rapidly with very little contestation, start to get worried. Then we look down south, the majority of, or a number of 
Imperial legacy structures are already killed. So you're going to be looking for those structures getting replaced. And you're also looking for any holy meteorite structures which may have gone up getting destroyed. And we're already starting to see Sov warfare taking place where a number of systems in Tanarifis have been reinforced. The iHubs are gone, so the ADMs are reset. So it's going to be a short thing where a lot of systems could be going back and forth over and over. So a single system being flipped probably doesn't mean much at this point. You're going to be looking for over time how many systems are going to one side consistently. And we will, of course, keep you updated on all the latest developments and their impacts on the overall war and possibly the impact to you wherever you live in your corner of the universe. Let's transition to my corner of the universe. While all this has been going on with these massive trillion-esque uh, lost battles, multi-trillion-esque lost battles, keep stars being anchored left and right, the little quiet region of Great Wildlands has had its own Great War pop-up. It is tiny by comparison, but has been tons of fun. Uh, I wrote about it on Reddit. Battle of Entax 6Z. If you read it, thank you very much for the presumed upvote. It was uh, something else. <laughs> I haven't had a day of Eve like that in a very long time. The background of this is the Great Wildlands Conservation Society. They were the group that had invited Capitalist Army in to do our first NullSec trade hub. We planted it in Entax 6Z. GWCS did not get along with Ebola, which was a mostly German alliance which controlled one of the entrances to Losec. Ebola had lived there for a very long time. Ebola goes out of their way to be obnoxious and aggressive to everyone. No one likes Ebola except for Hell Legion. And uh, some alliance called Catastrophic Intentions. Like, they're, they're blues, they have basically have the same standings, all that stuff. This was fine. GWCS and Ebola, you know, would fight every once in a while. You know, they would reinforce each other's Fortazars. It'd be a big fight. Nothing would really happen other than the fight. There was no, like, sustained effort from either side. But GWCS got the idea to form a singular alliance, take all the disparate little alliances that lived in Great Wildlands, merge them together. They would basically take one alliance, have all their actives move into a single corp, and that corp would join the main group. That worked for like a week and a half, two weeks, tops. <laughs> and then the constituent corps went their separate ways. Some went to Pandemic Legion, some went to Black Legion. A handful stayed. Uh, some of that handful that stayed lost their leadership to Pandemic Legion and Black Legion. So basically, uh, there was just this huge power vacuum. This major alliance, this super capital hunting capable alliance of alliances is now gone. Just prior to the collapse, you had a few new groups come in, uh, Unthinkables being one of the main ones. And they were like sort of setting up shop. You had some power start to establish themselves in nearby Scalding Pass that had been related to Great Wildlands in one way or another. Ebola saw their opportunity to expand. Ebola said, hey, we're going to start taking stuff. So they started pushing on moons, started taking moons. And then they sent mails to everybody basically saying, hey, you didn't support us against Great Wildlands Conservation Society. Some of you joined in on fleets against us. Uh, we're, like, not okay with you still living here. We're the top dogs in this region. Fuck you. We're kicking you out. 
We were on that list. <laughs> they they sent mails. They like an Eve mail. Yes. Wow. Literal Eve mails. <laughs> Saying literally fuck you. <laughs> Move your stuff or we're going to kick you out. It's awful nice of them to warn us. <laughs> so uh, Unthinkables, Gone Berserk, um, Blood Covenant... Some of these other groups had been fighting them for a couple of days prior, and then we got our mail, and we're like, well, I guess we know which side we should be on. So we hit up Unthinkables, and we're like, hey, we see what you guys are doing. They had been winning a number of small gang conflicts against Ebola pretty handedly. They, like, killed a carrier with a Cinnaball fleet, and it was just a wreck. So we're like, all right. We see what's going on. We're kind of in the same boat as you guys. Let's help you out. You know, help us out. They said, sure. We started getting in on some of the defensive timers. because They had attacked Unthinkables. They had attacked Blood Covenant. They had put some Scalding Pass Sav into Reinforced. So we started assisting on those timers. Ebola called us out in local. It was like, oh, you guys are going to burn. I'm like, okay. So sure enough, like the next day, I think it was, they came in and hit our HQ. Reinforced our Asbel, reinforced some of the Athenors we had in the system. Not great, uh, especially because our timers were set to the U.S. time zone, which was Great Wyland Conservation Society's strongest time zone and Ebola's weakest. But now the Conservation Society was gone, Ebola, within the past week or two, had recruited a U.S. time zone. Now Ebola was massively stronger in this time zone, and our new allies were all Euros. So we were a little worried. <laughs> it was just absolutely garbage timers for our new friends. And, you know, we just, we didn't have what we had. It was going to be a couple of days till the timers had taken effect properly, the new timers we had set. So we're like, all right, we'll do what we can. We moved in caps. We started sending out mails to people, making pings, all this stuff. The day comes around. Ebola shows up. They put a Drake fleet on one of our Athenors. We have a relatively small fleet. It's about half their size. They had 15-ish drakes with 5 to 10 support ships. We had like 10 to 12 dudes. We decided to go caps to try to make that a more even trade. So we went in with some carriers and some hawdreds. Tried to force them off. We didn't really want to show our caps unless we could like actually kill a significant portion of their fleet. Since their Drake fleet was tackleable and seemed sizable, it seemed like a good opportunity, so we put the ships on the field. They put some of their ships on the field. They jumped in a Minakawa and I believe a handful of Dreads. The fighting was brutal. It was going well for us initially. Initially. But then things turned. Uh, they managed to kill one of our faxes. And once that fax went down, my fax was had bumped off of the uh the model of the Athenor. So I was on the wrong side of the fight and drifting in the wrong direction. I went triage to try to keep the carriers up. We were just about to break a second dreadnought when suddenly I'm like getting even further out of range and what is happening is their Drake fleet is knocking me. Like all fifteen of the Drakes are bumping me, bumping me, bumping me, and I was already pretty close to being out of range anyway. So slowly my reps are losing their effectiveness. And finally I'm not able to keep up the carriers as well as I used to be. 
we lose one, we lose a second one, suddenly our dread DPS starts to you know, drops a little bit. Their dread comes out of uh siege, catches fax reps, we wind up getting wiped. Feel shitty. My fax is still on the field. <laughs> they can't break it because I'm so far away from the dreads now that they're hitting me in deep fall off and the drakes aren't really a problem. So I am tanking for ages. And finally, we just decide, well, all right, let's take another bite at this because their drake fleet now is outside of range of the Minakawa. The dreads are really far away. The drakes are still here. We, I have assigned it on the facts. Sorry, like, go ahead. How long is this interim period where you're sitting there tanking their drake fleet, but you're too far away from the dreads? How long is this going on? Like, do they have time to de-siege their dreads and reposition? Also, this is happening on an Athenor, right? Does the Athenor get reinforced during this point? Uh, so the Athenor did get pushed and reinforced, but the intervening period was so long that several other structures had come out and successfully repaired during it. Oh, wow. So yeah. they have these dreads, sieged on grid, shooting a fax, which is out of range, while there's nothing else on grid instead of desieging, going, hitting other timers, or even just getting on top of your fax. Yes. I mean, yeah. they were they were technically still in range, but I'm saying deep fall off. Mm -hmm. Really deep fall off. I was able to tank with very little trouble. I would have to like overheat occasionally, but it was very manageable. And so I'm hanging in, I'm hanging in, hanging in. Eventually they do reposition, but not before I light a Sino and we bridge in a reformed Ishtar fleet. Now at this point, it was a little bit later in the time, people heard catfight pings, we have more dudes. So Ishtars and Moonin start piling in, and we start going to town. We drop in some anti-capital dreads once they reposition one, I think they brought two maybe three dreadnoughts uh, uh, one was like when we hadn't seen before it was a dude that reshipped one had repositioned itself and then there were still two more that were way out of range and i think one of those guys came back later so they were like just really scattered and spread out all over the place so we dropped anti-cap dreads to try to get those kills and we did get one of the naglefars we were about to kill this other moros but it turns out his tank was much stronger than the naggles turned out to be Meanwhile, while this is happening, they drop in more dreads. Ebola brings in more dreads. And at this point, I am taxed to the limit. I need to e keep overheating my reppers. Uh, a pro, during the intervening period, I managed to get a reload off of my ancillary, my capital ancillary rep, which was clutch. Nice. However, the rep burned out. <laughs> oh, no. Please so I was test. Please tell me you have Thermo 5. Oh yeah, I had it all, but okay. I was I was riding it too hard. But it it was that or a drop because it I couldn't keep up with the DPS without it overheated. Mm -hmm. But eventually it it zeroed out, completely burnt. It wasn't something I could repair. They burned through my hit points. I was down. I ran over to our Fortizar to get another dreadnought and warped it back onto the field just in time to get the Nagel kill. Like I said, we started tearing into the uh, Moros, but he proved much, much more difficult. He managed to stall off our DPS long enough that Ebola counter-escalated with yet more dreads, uh, and they wound up wiping a good portion of our dread fleet. Miraculously, my phoenix survived, although it died today. We'll talk about that after. 
So that was round, at that point, that had been round three. Prior to that, there were some Raitaros that had come out. It was like Raitaros and Athenors that had come out in Scalding Pass. We went up there to fight. Uh, oh, sorry, no. Round one was an offensive timer we generated in 5FC against Ebola. We brought a Munin fleet out. They brought a uh, armor sack fleet with fax support. We killed like one or two small ships, but really couldn't break them. There was a lot of uh, DPS pressure on us, cat pressure from the Athenor. So we decided to leave before we took any losses. Then there was a scalding past small gang fights. Would have came out on top, except Cassidy's pod was like 500 mil. So that, that set us back. <laughs> Darn it, Cassidy. I know. Didn't and then this time around was the big fight, though. And then after that, we were like, oh, fuck. Okay. So we all brought it back. Now, to everybody's credit, not a one person said, oh, well, I guess we can't defend the next timer. Or, oh, I guess we'll just we'll just punt it and wait for the, the whole timer in a couple days. Everyone was like, all right, what are we going to do tonight to keep fighting? About an hour, hour, 15 minutes later was our Asbel coming out by the time all the shit was done. At this point, we had been fighting for like eight hours straight with maybe a couple hour break here and there. It was pretty much nonstop. I think we had like overall two and a half, maybe three hours spurt like in between timers in total. Not really enough time in one spot to really go out and do anything. It was just like, okay, guys, get lunch now or bio now. Come back as soon as you can kind of shit. And this is the big fight. Now, during the previous fight, we had gotten a convo from Unspoken Alliance, which live in the drone regions just north of Great Wildlands. Unspoken was interested in getting in on this. Now, they couldn't make it for the fight that was ongoing, but they knew about the timer after that, and they were in. So we incorporated them into the plan. We knew what Ebola could drop, because we had tested them just before. So this time around, we're going to do the same thing, but on the Asbel. Asbel timer comes around, Ebola shows up right on time. They bring a Geddon fleet this time with a, I believe it was two Fax and a Moros, or with one Fax and two Moros, I forget which. And they started hitting it. Now they are definitely pausing the timer. We bring in the Ishtar fleet to try to break them, not breaking the Fax reps. We bring in a small number of dreadnoughts to try to break the dreads. This takes a while. Ebola sees our dreads, goes, okay. They drop all the rest of their stuff. A couple of dreads, a couple of carriers, another fax. This was a newt fax, as it turned out. Uh, this is what we were hoping for, but it took a while to get there, because after we put our dreads down... They didn't really escalate that much initially. It actually took Unspoken bringing a small Macario fleet onto the field to get the second wave of escalations, and that's what we are really waiting for. So they counter-dropped that second time. We were pretty confident this was everything that they had at the moment. Unspoken had eight dreads standing by, eight anti-cap dreads. They bridged them all in, and we started hitting them hard. The dread tanks on the Ebola side could not handle it. They got wiped almost immediately. Once they were down, it was working on the fax machines. The faxes took a long time. They were tough. But eventually, we managed to break them. Once they were down, it was cleaning up the get-ins. Finally, there were one or two more dreads left in the field that they destroyed afterwards. One of them was a phoenix that was tanked, like, beyond belief. 
he actually managed to last way longer than some of the other stuff. I don't know how. Uh, just like lots of faction mids and stuff. But it was pretty impressive to watch. Anyway, all told, we managed to destroy almost as much as both sides had lost in the previous round and defended the timer. End of the day, we only lost the one timer. Even though we wiped our basically our entire U.S. capital fleet, we managed to bring in or like get other people logged in enough caps to make the bait work. And that's all we needed. Timers defended. Uh, the next round of that timer, Ebola no-showed for. Unspoken actually wound up showing up for it, and we had to fight Unspoken. <laughs> we took their uh, took their Eagle Fleet on with some Munins and Ishtars. They technically won that fight, but we saved the ship or uh, saved the Athnor, and it was pretty close. It was very fun. We destroyed got to be hundreds of mil on drones, just shooting drones down. It was good times. So that was Battle of Intac Six. Uh, holy balls. It was a lot of shit. Certainly one of the bigger fights that I've participated in recently. Uh, let's see about the Butcher's Bill here. Uh, all told, from all the fighting outside of the stuff in Scalding Pass, we lost 21.8 bill, we killed 31.9 bill. Wow. So a pretty bloody battle on both sides. But we did come out on top. Like I said, we defended all the timers, which felt pretty good. But that was not the end. Oh, no. We had another fight in 5FC just prior to the recording of this show. This was uh, another round of fighting on the Athenor, which we had started attacking just prior to the Intac 6 fight. Uh, they had managed to save it that day, but we went in re and reinforced it later. I also so managed is- to push it into its hull timer. So 5FC, this is an Ebola structure. So yes. as opposed to NTAC 6, where this is your main trade hub, your assets that you're defending, now you're pushing back 5FC, this is an Ebola structure. Yeah, both sides were kind of pushing against each other. The difference was Ebola, when they're pushing, they're pushing against our core structures. When we're pushing, we're really only able to push against their fringe structures, the stuff that's near our HQs. Hmm. So 5FC is like two jumps from N6 and also two jumps from 92 box, which is unthinkable staging. So it's a pretty convenient spot for us to attack. Whereas NTAC 6 and 5FC itself are like, if you just went by gates, a good 10 minutes away with a side like a battleship or battle cruiser fleet for Ebola. Now they do have Titans so they can bridge, but like going back and forth after the initial fight is a little more awkward for them. They've got tons of stuff that's much closer to their HQ that we haven't really tried to push on yet. So we're just pushing, like, I think they have an Af- an Astra House in 92 box. That's getting pushed on right now by us. The 5FC structure we're pushing on, but we haven't really attacked their HQ or anything like that, whereas they have hit some of our HQ structures. Gotcha. The 5FC Athenor is on a 6-4, though, so it's valuable. They have showed up reliably to defend it. This was no exception. Uh, you know, it was like, I was doing a little bit of work. I was trying to get some lunch together. Didn't wind up doing any of that as this fight was going down. I logged in just, just as they were calling for capitals to come in. So I hopped right in my dread and signed it with everybody else and landed in the middle of a huge as fuck capital brawl. Carriers, dreads, fax machines, no supers. 
it seemed to be going well for our side initially, but I believe Ebola brought in a second round of dreads, reshipped round of dreads, and we were not able to match them on that in this case. Like, we had a couple guys ready to go, but no Sinos to come in. So things kind of snowballed out of control from there. But it was another huge fuzz-fuck fight. Uh, in this case, Ebola killed, or excuse me, Ebola lost 23.3. Ebola killed 37.7. And most of that is cat deaths, along with some Macarials on our side. Interesting. Yeah, it was uh, Macarials versus Armageddons, and Armor Caps versus Armor Caps on both sides. So you mentioned that Ebola has Titans. Do they have, like, combat-capable supers? Uh, as far as I know, yes. They have not used them so far, but they do have them. And do you guys have combat-capable supers? Uh, yes. We, no one has used the supers so far. Okay. So we have still yet to see the height of where this combat can escalate. Yes. Um, so I believe I believe the situation is most, if not all, of the alliances involved have a small number of super caps, like less than five apiece. And I think Ebola is also less than five. At least my guess is. I don't think anyone's really seen it. They have, as far as we know, one Titan, probably two, but they're just bridgers. They're not combat Titans. Gotcha. I do not know how many of our allies have Titans, but I do know from a post on the... At least these are the numbers that some guy on... Reddit pulled out for our coalition. It seems like most of the alliances involved have anywhere between one and three, and Ebola probably has anywhere between three and five. Interesting. In terms of raw numbers, if you don't count the third parties, which is like Bright Side of Death, um, Unspoken Alliance, etc., like just the alliances that are reliably helping each other against Ebola. Ebola still has the numbers advantage, just because they're just they're large, and they also have a few allies of their own. But it's close, and the fights have been relatively even. A lot of the early fighting was won by our side, but was very low stakes. Now that we're getting into these capital brawls that seem to be super even, and you know it's kind of going every which way. Uh, Ebola won one. We won another one. Ebola just won today. They're all super close. I think the first fight, honestly... Okay, motorcycle dude, relax. <laughs> wow. Honestly, the first fight, if I hadn't gotten knocked out of range like that, I think it would have gone very differently. Because I was able to keep up the carriers against their dread damage, and we were mm -hmm. breaking that Morris. If I had kept those two carriers alive, he would have died. We probably would have gotten another dread kill afterward. So... And and with those losses, I doubt Ebola would have re, like re jumped in, because they wouldn't have gotten any kills at that point. So, shitty warp in on my end, and good play from the Drake FC on Ebola side to knock me out like that. That was basically the decisive decision in that fight. These third parties that you mentioned, do they also live in Great Wildlands? No, I believe Bright Side of Death is a Scalding Pass alliance, and Unspoken Alliance is an Ethereum reach. Okay, but have they also received mails from Ebola saying, hey, listen, we're coming for you? I don't know if Bright Side got a mail. 
I think they did. But if they didn't, they definitely got a few notifications because Ebola had been attacking some of their SAV and structures in Scalding Pass. Gotcha. It it seems to me like Ebola is their ego is shooting them in the foot. Like this power vacuum happens, they realize that they are the largest single entity. And so what can only be described as purely an egotistical move, they send out mails telling everyone, hey, listen, we're coming for you. Then number one gives all these groups the opportunity to prep for it. And number two, it means that any group who would have just happily sat on the side, maybe third party, but not necessarily gotten involved in the conflict for fear of getting on Ebola's bad side, they already know that Ebola is coming for them. So why not join up and fight them off? Right? So like, Yes. It seems like Ebola has just shot themselves in the foot because they thought they were top dog and in reality have just provided the necessary um, influence. What's the term I'm looking for? They, they definitely like they gave the, the impetus for an alliance. Exactly. Like, rewind the clock two weeks or whatever it was. They could have singled these alliances out and like either not said anything at all or just said like hey you know you're fine we're just gonna go after these guys going after those guys then going after somebody else kind of thing maybe not attack scalding pass or not go out of their way to antagonize these other third-party groups and make them more inclined to third-party against them and like come at the various alliances one-on-one it would not have been a problem but they're like, not only were they attacking all of them at the same time, but the way in which they did so diplomatically, like, took all the ambiguity out of the way. Like, there was no longer an open question of if these alliances should work together. It was just how much should we work together. And we decided to work together quite a bit. Interesting. But that said, like I said, even with all of us together, these fights are still close and Ebola is coming out on top at least every once in a while. At least... Actually, of the three major capital engagements since we've been in the war, uh, they've won two out of the three of them. Iskwise, I think it's almost exactly straight even. Do they have a better ability to replace their losses? That's hard to say. Economy of scale type thing, where because they're a singular group, they can better replace their losses, whereas you guys as disparate groups can't coordinate that effort. Their logistics are definitely easier for that reason. Also, they are closer to Empire than all the other groups. They like live in the border system. So getting stuff in and out is definitely easier for them. They also, prior to like this all-out war, had taken some stuff from GWCD, GWCS, like the Inactive Alliance, or Alliances. So I believe they have a greater number of Moons, a greater number of Pocos, all that kind of thing. So they are pulling in more money that way. Okay. But, you know, we're doing okay so far in terms of reships. We managed to replace our cap fleet like three times. <laughs> but that said, yeah, I mean, if I had to say just on purely on paper, I think the logistics advantage goes to them. We're no slouches, though. Speaking of analyzing things purely on paper, let's uh, transition over to looking at the Alliance Tournament bracket. Mm-hmm. Alliance Tournament starts next week. Uh, there's been a lot of malaise about the tournament this year. 
But that said, I'm still excited for it. And we do have the brackets now. Get to see what's going on. Uh, first off, there are some important alliances that are getting buys due to how well they did last time. Vydra Reloaded, Northern Coalition, Skill Yourself, Hydra Reloaded, and Laser Hawks will all be advancing to the next round. Uh, they will face the winner of, I believe, the lowest pairing of their respective brackets. If it I'm looking at it correctly. Look that way. Yeah. So Vyadra will face the winner of Veloricords and Requiem Eternal. Skill Yourself will fight Goonswarm or Lumpy. Hydra will fight Quebec United Legions and Bastion. And Laserhawks will fight the winner of Dreamfleet, who may not even show up at this point, and United Federation of Conifers, which I believe did well last year. It looks like the bracket works out such that the the groups receiving the buy will face the winner of the middle-seeded groups. So, like, uh, in the bracket, for all the beginning stuff, uh, the majority of the matches are, like, a 50 seed versus a 10 seed or something like that. And then, as they get closer to the middle, so, like, Laser Hawks is going to face off against the winner between, looks like, 34 and 35. And it looks like within each sub-bracket, whoever has the buy is facing off against, basically, the closest pair of seeds. So, what should be the most even match, if the seeding makes sense... Like, if the seating is actually... Well, it's not as random, but... It's not. It's totally random. That That's what it is. The lower seating don't really matter, apart from the groups which get a buy and the top 16, which came in from last year. Look Let's talk... this bracket, and the groups that I recognize, Laserhawks has by far the easiest route to the semifinals. But the oh, quarterfinals? Yeah. I think it's the quarterfinals, but, I mean, holy cow, like... Northern coalitions, so it's interesting, there are two, there are sort of four, you can break it up, huh? let me count. There are five groups which receive a buy, and so we'll sort of call each of those groups, they have a sub-bracket. Vydra sub-bracket, they have Vydra, which is going to be obviously a contender, Vydra Relauded. In there they've got Valora Chords, who had a pretty decent showing. They've got Slice, who had a pretty decent showing. They've got Brave, who had a pretty decent showing. They've got Volta, who had a fantastic showing. Seven Sins did not do bad. Um, I'm not saying they're going to do amazing, but I think they were a dark horse from last year. Frankly, they have Volta first round. My hopes aren't high. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not high, but I think it'll be a more exciting match than many people may think. Yeah. Then we look into Northern Oh, Coalition. also, also, did not touch on the Reformed Black Legion is also in that bracket against the Bastard Cartel first round. Yeah, I just, I don't have a way to predict how they're going to do, right? I don't know who they picked up, if they're going to be able to put in, or even if they were going to be focusing at all on the Alliance tournament. It's still interesting, though. Yeah, it is interesting and worth mentioning. Uh, then we go into the other sort of sub-brackets, You've got the Northern Coalition bracket, which they've got, and this is a smaller bracket itself. So the Volta, or pardon me, the Vydra, Hydra, and Laserhawks brackets are all like larger trees. There are four of these large trees. And then one of these large trees has Northern Coalition and Skill Yourself both receiving a buy. And so we're going to talk about those two sub brackets separately. Within the Northern Coalition one, they've got Pandemic Legion. And Templus Calcif. So, like, second round of this Northern Coalition bracket is going to be NC versus the winner of We Want Your Risk versus Darwinism. 
And yeah, I actually think NC dot may have the hardest route. Maybe, because then you've got PL versus Templus Calcif. PL, we'll see if they are improved from last year. Last year, it was reportedly low for them based on everybody going over to Hydra. And then Templus Calcif had a good showing as well. So then coming out of that, you've got NC versus the winner of PL versus Templus. Moving down, then we've got Skill Yourselves Bracket. They've got Lumpy and Goonswarm. I think Lumpy did relatively well. Goonswarm is expected to do well. And this is very interesting, touching on our previous story. Uh, Imperial Legacy versus Holy Meteorite. It's yeah, going to happen yeah. with Goonswarm versus Lumpy. And if they win, Goonswarm versus Skill. Exactly. And then if we go further down the bracket, we've got Initiative within this bracket, who also did well. We've got RVB, Blue Republic specifically. Um, so if Initiative makes it through and Skill Yourself or Lumpy make it through, then you're going to have another clash from the Null Sex Sphere. Or you could have Imperium versus Imperium with Goonsworn versus Initiative. Yep, exactly. So that's going to be interesting from the drama point of view as far as Null Blocks and their ego. Moving down into the, the Hydra Reloaded section, we've got... This is the one that I thought would actually be the toughest because you've got Hydra Reloaded, then you've got Test, you've got Snuff, you've got Tuskers, you've got Few, and I think No Handlebars did well last time, did they not? Uh, I believe they... Believe they uh performed above expectations i forget exactly how things went but i think they did impress and yeah actually now that i'm looking at it i think if you go down the various brackets the hydra reloaded one may actually have the potential to be the toughest because you'll have either test or try or sn i mean almost certainly snuffed going into the next round so you'll have the winner of test try or snuffed they will probably be facing the winner of bastion and hydra yeah, I believe Hydra will probably win that. So they will play, my guess would be Snuffed or Try. I respect tests, but I don't think they're going to go into round three. And then in the other bracket, it's probably going to be Tuskers, Handlebars, or Few with, I think based on their tournament performance, the Tuskers. So we could be seeing like some pretty spicy mashups going all the way down. Yeah, like before we even get to the best of threes in round five, you're going to probably have Hydra v. Tuskers. Like, unless one of these groups drops into the loser's bracket early, round four of this bracket tree is going to be probably Hydra v. Tuskers, and it's just going to be a best of one. Yeah, that's going to be a huge match. And from the drama point of view, first round, test versus try. Uh, snuffed yeah. out, almost certainly going to win, so you'll either have... Imperial Legacy versus Holy Meteorite, or you or you will have, uh, well, actually, yeah, you'll have uh, yeah, Test versus an Imperium Alliance. It'll be interesting. Then going down to by far the easiest bracket, freaking Laserhawks. Like Dreamfleet's probably going to be a no show, or at least not a a good showing. Bright Side of Death did unexpectedly well with a cheese comp because uh, fit a scram. Salt Farmers, I think, did relatively well. I can't quite recall. You've got Unspoken Alliance, which is one of your bros, or did you fight them? I can't remember. Uh, they, they are bros at the moment. Now, very interesting. If Bright Side of Death and Unspoken both win, 
that will be well unspoken i wouldn't say they're bros we they blued us for a fight and then we fought directly the next time around so i don't know but it will be interesting because both of them are third parties in the great wildlands war from opposite sides of the eve map with uh bright side of death being the southern alliance unspoken alliance being their northern equivalent so just from a great wildlands meta point of view that will be very entertaining Moving on down, we've got Penizelt versus Losechnaya. That should be a good match, if I remember Losechnaya correctly. Um, yeah, I, I would pick LSH on that one. Then the winner between that goes probably against Castabouts. Castabouts do some wonky things, but being unpredictable is sometimes an asset in a best-of-one scenario. So that could be interesting. Definitely a match to watch. Further down the bracket, we've actually got Fraternity in this bracket, so... I'm not seeing anyone else from the current null block war going on that'll face fraternity. So fraternity makes it out of the bracket. The soonest they're going to face someone is going to be in round five in the best of threes. And uh, an early first round match that I don't want people to sleep on, a band apart versus centipede caliphate. A band apart, uh, they're just generally really good. That's Rick's Javix's crew. And centipede caliphate, one of the most impressive smaller alliances in the southern conflict right now. Uh, or at least their their block. I don't know how well they individually contribute to that whole bunch, but uh, definitely could be a surprise, a pleasant surprise. So I expect that match to be really good. I will. I would predict a band apart to go ahead of them, but I think it'll be a very entertaining bout. And a band apart versus likely fraternity in the next round should be a banger. Losers bracket, it's it's gonna be like, whew, it's no way to predict that. So, I mean, do we have the stream schedule for when these matches? Uh, they will begin Saturday, July twenty eighth at fourteen hundred UTC. Finals taking place Saturday, eighteen hundred of August fifteen UTC. All right, so and like- you can follow it on twitch.tv slash ccp. The EVNT crew will be handling all of the production and calls. Should be a really interesting... Like, I'm interested in it, at the very least, to see what the meta looks like. Like, these rules are so nuts. I can't wait to see what groups are bringing out. It will definitely... I mean, the rules basically throw all of the older metas totally out of the window. I don't think any of them will be reproducible, except for maybe some of the Battlecruiser type doctrines but even then it'll be a stretch so you're going to see something totally different now whether it's going to be as fun or interesting as it was before is the open question but it will be new we can assure you of that and uh you know based on how these early brackets are looking i think the most entertaining thing for me is going to be the inner alliance drama that goes on especially some of the uh in in light of the big block war that's going on and some of the matchups in the early rounds could lead to some interesting stories, definitely some bragging rights on the lines for these alliances. That's what I'm going to be in for, and I'm sure the matches will entertain. You know, Maybe they won't be as interesting tactically, or maybe they'll be more interesting tactically. I don't know. I think the actual way it will play out will still be pretty exciting, just because it's the tournament. You can't help yeah. but get into it. I anticipate, like based on this meta, uh, there's going to be a lot of upsets. I think that it's going to be a lot based on luck of the draw, who brings what, who has an understanding of what they're flying and basically how to use it. 
people are going to be making mistakes left and right. There's not much experience that'll tell you how to fly versus another comp, barring a lot of interplay with scrims that's been going on behind the scenes or test open practices and things. So I would not be surprised to see an inordinate amount of Sorella stories and um, even like big names from previous tournaments going out in like the first weekend. Is it entirely viable or possible? Like I would expect one of the big names to go out in the first weekend just because it's going to be entirely a large portion up to luck. So if you're interested in seeing Cinderella stories and upsets and some nonsense plays, it's probably worth it. If you're looking to see the best team win, uh, good luck. Wow, that's, that's a little dark. I mean, they're best of ones. Like, if these were best of threes, best of fives, sure. And I realize, like, with the four, it's just not viable to have best of threes for everything with these number of teams. But I really, with best of ones, with a new meta, with the crazy rule set that we have, I honestly do not think that the majority of the matches will be decided by who has the most skill. I think it's it's really going to be a lot of luck involved here. I mean, I think that takes a very limited view of what skill is in the context of the Alliance tournament. A lot of it is the pre-planning. A lot of it is the training that goes into it. A lot of it is seeing what else is going on on day one or day two and adapting to the what meta you're seeing. Uh, there's even some intelligence gathering and like mind games with it. Yes, the winner may not be the most uh, technically skilled on-field team, but that doesn't mean it's not the best team. Because there's more to the Alliance tournament than just the execution on-field. There's a lot of prep work that goes into it, and there is something to be said for your team being able to adapt. Absolutely. But uh, in any case, it's... You just got to go watch the streams. I mean, that's that's the long and short of it. It's going to be interesting to watch no matter what. Just uh, take the results with a grain of salt is my advice. Do you have a host highlight, sir? I kind of gave mine. <laughs> the Antec 6 fight. Yeah. So my host highlight, I went on my first Bombers Bar fleet, I think. It was interesting because it was just a spur of the moment thing. It was either the day I left MC or the day after. And looking for things to do, had the Spectre Fleet channel open, had Bomber's Bar Fleet open, was sort of sorting other things on some alts, and Templeman just randomly, Templeman being like one of the founding members of Bomber's Bar, he's like, hey guys, spur of the moment fleet, get to Amar, we're going. It's like, okay, I'll join up, so I, I fit up a Falcon, head on out there, we kill two test Rorquals, and something else. A very pimped out Hugin. And then on our way back into the hole, some people jump without the FC telling them to, and wouldn't you know it, hole control had a connection in and bombed the lemmings. So it's like, well, okay, that was it. But like, first Bombers Bar fleet, I had old school Templeman Bombers Bar FC. He is still like as energetic and hype as ever. I, isn't he the one in the This Is Eve trailer doing oh, the, yeah. the bombing voice like, it was pretty cool having that going on while we're just sitting there void bombing some Rorquals and killing them. It was pretty great. But that was definitely a highlight. Got some green on the killboard, had some content, got to fly with Templeman for the first time. It was great. I mean, I know it's not exactly a highlight, but I think the 
audience would be somewhat interested in the info that you just dropped. You have left Mercenary Coalition. Yeah. I mean, it's a thing. I'm out of respect for some of the people. Emphasis on some of the people still there. I'm not going to really go into the details about why I left. I can say that a portion of it was I did not think that Mercenary Coalition should have been jumping into this all of Eve war without being hired, like just jumping in as a card carrying member of PanFam I wasn't a particular fan of. But there were a multitude of other things that were just I joined well, I didn't I haven't joined anyone yet. I didn't really know where I was going to go. I just didn't know MC was not where I wanted to be. And so I'm now in my own little corp. It's called Diminishing Returns. My ticker is N minus one. That's it. Are you actively recruiting with this corp or what's going on? No, I just thought it was a cool name and a ticker. <laughs> it is a cool ticker. I really like that, actually. Well, uh, I guess, will you keep the audience praised of your exploits with the, with the new corp or if you decide where to go? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you'll be hearing about, like, I'm not going to be sitting around forever. Right now, I'm focusing on getting income streams back up and running. I've rented a system. I may actually be looking to switch because, like, all of the major renting organizations are currently involved in this massive war you may have heard about. So it's going to be a matter of keeping my eye on how this war turns out and figuring out who I'm going to be renting from and what is a safe bet. Like, sure, one group's cheaper, but do I expect their space to get rolled in the next two months type thing? So I'm going to be focusing on that to begin with. Probably won't be joining another organization for like a month or something like that, if at all going to be looking to get in on some npsi stuff maybe i'll be hitting up some organizations saying hey listen i think you're cool dudes i might be interested in joining can i join a fleet so you may hear about some of that but we'll be keeping you guys appraised from my end on that i'm sure alec will be keeping us up to date on ntac 6 oh yes all the stuff going on with the capitalist army and then of course we're going to be covering the alliance tournament in this all of eve war yeah this uh great wildlands thing feels very much like a beginning uh of probably something that lasts for quite a while because it seems at least from our end it seems obvious that uh, ebola is not going to stop and keeping ebola's current level of ascendancy in great wildlands is not conducive to our interests and the interests of the other alliances that we're working with so the status quo even if both sides stopped fighting right now i don't think would be acceptable to anyone involved which to me means it's a pretty good sign that the fight's going to keep going for a while until something changes i think one final point i want to make uh before we head off is that your your comment that this fight is going to be going on for a little while longer i think is also true of this larger scale war and during the week there was a post by was it fozzy or was it rise on potential balance changes to fax machines with some yes. very interesting numbers and very interesting connotations. The way he presented it makes me think that this is a first pass type thing and that it is more than likely going to change. So I'm going to not necessarily go into depth on how this could impact things because I really don't think these are anywhere close to near final numbers yet. We'll see if something actually hits CC, then we may talk about it. But it's, I don't think it's worth having the in-depth discussion yet, especially when we have all of this other stuff to talk about. So that did no. happen. You should go and check it out if that may affect you because it's something to keep your eye on. 
but we won't be in-depth discussing it until something more firm comes out. Or we have a week of not a lot of news, in which case we can talk about the issues with fax machines and why CCP would want to change them. Is a good topic of discussion, but we could really have it any week. Anyway, that's it for this episode. Head to declarationsofwar.com to participate in the poll. Leave your comment on this episode. Capitalist Army is definitely recruiting. Uh, with this new war, we can use all the good capitalists we can get. Join Capitalist Chat and Game for more info. It'll have a link to our Discord where you can come hang out and see if Capitalist Army might be right for you. Wherever you are and whichever side you're on, good hunting, listeners. <laughs>